Hi, everyone. Yeah, welcome again to Mosaic. We are, as you can see, in the middle of a series, sort of on the front end, looking at the rise of David. We'll look at the fall of David later in the year, but here we are, the front end of the rise of David in our scripture reading, a passage on which the teaching is based, is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed." Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. That's the word of the Lord this morning, it really is. (laughs) We are, as we said on the front end of a series, looking at the rise of David, and here's why we've said we're looking at David. Apart from Jesus Christ, there's no one person in all the Bible 
with more stories and more words written about him than the person of David. And therefore, if we really want to understand what the Bible is and what the Bible means, we had better get a good grasp on who David is and what David means. And we said one of the best ways to understand David is to look not necessarily at him, but at the individuals, the the characters surrounding him. In other words, we see David best by seeing the people in his life. And so this morning we come to one of the main characters in David's life, the first king of Israel, a man named Saul. And we saw last week that God had promised his people, promised Israel a great king through a song sung by a woman named Hannah. And Hannah had a son named Samuel, who you heard of in the story. And Samuel became Israel's greatest and final judge, and who grew up hearing the song of his mother, hearing Hannah's song, and one day anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. But if you know Saul's life, it's one of tragedy. On the scale of really any great Shakespearean play, Saul, he's sort of the original Macbeth. You know, he's sort of the original Richard III. He's epic in his tragedy. He, he starts off as a, a decent enough, a likable enough fellow. He, he seems to want to do what's right at first. He's courageous in battle, leads the people. At one point, he's incredibly merciful towards those who had deeply wronged him. And yet, before the Bible is done showing us his life, We see a man who's become perpetually insecure, deeply paranoid, and who exterminates an entire town of his own people and God's priests out of the sense of being disrespected. Why do good people go bad? How can seemingly bright people go dark? How can someone whose life uh, and career begin well end in tragedy like this? And And what, most importantly, what can keep us from becoming that ourselves and can rescue us if we do? That's what we're going to look at this morning under three headings, three ideas from the passage. First, we're going to look at how kings fall. Secondly, why people fail. And finally, how God frees. We'll begin here in number one. Uh, We'll pick up the story here in verse three. God said through Samuel, now go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has. Don't spare him. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, before we understand what Saul did here, actually what he didn't do, we can't go any further until we we understand rightly what God has told Saul to do. Because for many, this verse here, this idea here, this this text here is one of the hardest texts, most difficult to grasp concepts in the Bible. What's going on? What does it mean? Well, here God says to Saul, Saul, I want you to go and do battle with the Amalekites. I'm going to give you the victory, and once it's done, I don't want you to leave alive a single person or animal. I want you to wipe them all out. And now, if you just react to that, if you just sort of tune out at this point, if you aren't willing to enter into the cultural context of that day, want to understand their culture and what it meant, if you only sit back in a sort of 21st century ethnocentric way and say, man, this is awful. This stuff is why I left church in the first place and here I am back today. And we're talking about it again. If that's you, listen, you'll never understand. you never grasp the merciful and just thing God is doing here. 
The Amalekites were a historically cruel and famously violent people. They marauded the neighboring peoples. They enslaved and raped the surrounding nations. They were notorious for their abusive and pitiless treatment of the slaves they had taken and raped. And God is saying here, I have had enough. Saul, it's time to put these people under the ban. That's the Hebrew word for it, the ban. It's time for them to face justice. The cries of their neighbors have reached my ears. The cries of the oppressed have come to me. I want you, Saul, to put a stop to it. Let me ask. How do you deal with a people like that? How do you deal with international aggressors in a day without media coverage, hmm? without judicial systems, without prisons? The reality is, the truth is, it requires force to stop a people like that. Only how God instructed Saul to deal with the Amalekites was in a completely and fundamentally different way than any other nation did in that day and age. See, the reason God told him, if you'll notice, not to spare anything, not even the animals, was because plundering another nation's livestock was a way of enriching your own economy and impoverishing another nation. See, money, it wasn't tied up in banks or stocks. Money was in animals. It was in livestock. And by keeping another nation's livestock or by keeping another nation's leaders enforcing them to work for you. Now, your nation prospers while their economy and intelligentsia crumble. And the reason you would keep another nation's king was either to show him off as your own trophy of power or you could ransom him off at a high price to one of his enemies. Either way, you gloat, you become rich at his expense, at another nation's expense, and God is saying, you must not do that. This is to be an act of justice and justice alone. You must not profit one cent from it. All other nations go to war to enrich themselves, but you can't do this, Saul. You must not enrich yourself in this kind of battle. Otherwise, it's not true justice. It's war profiteering done in my name, and I'll have none of it. See, But Saul does it. He does it. No matter what God said. You'll notice what it said he did. The text, of course, makes it clear. It said, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. In other words, Saul here, he's only partially obedient. Only partially obedient. He destroyed everything that couldn't help him personally, but kept everything that could. He enriched himself through violence and the abuse of power, and he had done the same thing that almost every country ever does when it goes to war. He said it was for justice, but really it was for profit and for his own national interests. And when it comes to any war, any nations ever engaged him, we should ask that question. Is it really for justice, or is it just for our national interests and profits? And here now is the dark irony. Saul, can you see? Saul here, who's he become? He's become Agag, hasn't he? The Israelites, who are they becoming? Just like the Amalekites. They're becoming the very thing they once despised. As a king, Saul's out not for justice, but for profit, doing the thing God warned him about. And now here with one choice, one seemingly small act of disobedience, Saul has set himself on a course of action from which he could not and would not ever deviate. The choice to only partially obey, not to fully obey God, 
cost him everything. And Samuel the prophet delivers him in a devastating message. At the end of the story, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Years ago, uh, a Jewish psychologist, a man by the name of Stanley Milgram, asked a question. Could the Holocaust happen here in America? People said, no way, that was Nazi Germany. You know, that was the 1930s and 40s. No way that could happen today. He said, well, let's say Hitler asked you to electrocute just one person. Would you do it? People said, no way, I'm a good person. I would never do that. And so Milgram set up an experiment for about a thousand smart and educated folks up in New England, our nation's best and brightest. And here's what he did. He paired two of those volunteers together in a room. There was a learner and a teacher. The learner don't want to be the learner here. The learner got tied up to a shock apparatus system, a shock box, in the next room. The learner could be middle-aged, could be college student, whoever. And the teacher, the other person, was told by an authority figure, you know, the guy in the white lab coat, your job as teacher is to give him some stuff, some material to learn. And if he gets it right, if the learner gets it right, reward him. If he doesn't, you press a button on the shock box. The first button is 15 volts. He won't even feel it. And recently, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, he's a professor at Stanford University, he looked at Dr. Milgram's study, and he wrote about it in the book called The Lucifer Effect, and he gave a speech about that study, and in his book, here's what he said. He said, that's the key. All evil starts with 15 volts. And then the next step is another 15 volts. The problem is, at the end of the line, it's 450 volts. And as you go along, the guy's screaming, I've got a heart condition, I'm out of here. You know, you're a good person. You complain, sir, who will be responsible if something happens to him. The experimenter says, don't worry, I will be responsible. Continue, teacher. And he closes this way. He said, the question is, who would go all the way to 450 volts? Well, as it turns out, in study after study, in this situation, these circumstances, almost everybody did, men and women. They had to be stopped. See, one small choice led to another small bad choice, which led to another, which led to a person's going all the way down a very dark path to become what they swore they could never become. A businessman here became Hitler, can you see? Saul became Agag, and that's how kings fall. One small decision at a time, one step at a time, one small 15-volt choice of partial disobedience brings kings to ruin. The question is why, though, right? Why would anyone begin down a path like that? Well, what Dr. Zimbardo and most psychologists say is this. They say, it's the system that's to blame. It's the system that people are in that causes them to go bad. Bad systems make good people do bad, and it's true. Up to a point. There is such a thing as systemic evil and systems that perpetuate injustice, and they must be stopped. After all, look at the Amalekites here. God's saying to Saul, You must stop, you must bring down this inequitable, unjust system. See? But systems alone can't account for all the evil in the world because, after all, it can't even account. They can't even account for all the evil here in this story. 
What evil system, let's ask, what evil system was Saul a part of here? Who made him go bad? Here he's got the Torah, right? He's got the word of God to guide him. He's got the tabernacle, uh, God's perfect system of sacrifice to speak to him. He's got Samuel, God's prophet and judge to direct him. Saul has got every good moral tool at his disposal inside the best spiritual system of his day. And yet he still chooses to only partially obey, to only somewhat do the right thing. He makes the 15-volt choice, and it ends up costing him everything. Kings fall one small decision at a time. But let's circle back to the question, why did he do it? Why did he? Well, it's for the same reason, actually the same three reasons we do it. Three reasons this story shows us brings us to number two, why people fail. Why do we only obey God partially, even when we know it'll cost us? Why do we make the 15-volt decision? Three ways we see through Saul. First, we blind ourselves. Second, we blame others. Third, we'll, we build monuments. Let's move through these briefly. First, we blind ourselves. Now, you see in the story, uh, Samuel walks up to Saul at the outset of a story, and you'll notice as, as Samuel's going on the way here, he, he comes up to Saul, but Samuel doesn't even speak first. No, he's coming up to Saul, and Saul meets him and speaks first, and what does he open with? Not, hey, I'm glad you're here, or I blew it. Please forgive me. No. Here's what Saul says first. He says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. He's saying, Samuel, I heard what God said. I listened and I obeyed. See, he's immediately justifying his actions, defending himself. He's saying, nothing to see here. To which Samuel replies, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? Which is a way of saying, if you've heard the Lord, Saul, then why do I hear sheep? If you've heard the Lord, Saul, why do I hear sheep? Saul claims to have obeyed, but he hasn't. What's he doing? Hear this. He's turning up the volume of self-deception in his heart to cover the rattling noise of his conscience. Hear that? He's got a little radio of self-deception. It's got a volume knob. He turns it up when his conscience begins to speak to drown out what he knows is true. And the reason I know this is true is because... I've done this in my own car. <laughs> my wife will turn to me and say, honey, you know, do you hear that? I say, uh, turn up, I'll turn up the radio and say, hear what? You know, nothing to hear here. Things are ship-shaped. We're doing good. Or, or there'll be some noise uh, in the oven or the air conditioner, the dishwasher. Morgan, do you hear that? <laughs> hear what, I say, as I turn up the television. You know, honey, the car's in great shape. Honey, you know, the house is fine. Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. See, Saul blinds himself to the truth. He, he's choosing to be self-deceived about what he's done. Dr. Tim Keller defines self-deception like this. He said, the human heart has an almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself if the truth is too painful. It's possible to hear but not really hear. It's possible to know something and not know it because you don't really want to know it. Self-deception, he closes with, is not the most terrible thing we do, but it's the reason we do the most terrible things we do. 
The first town in Germany with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated after World War II was Ordruf. And, and when the GIs, when the American soldiers got to the camp, there were a number of prisoners there that were still alive that the Germans hadn't executed yet. But the German guards knew, the Nazi guards knew there, were, there was still some evidence of what they had done. And so they exhumed, they dug up 2,000 bodies out of a mass grave to try to incinerate them before the Allies got there. And they knew they were coming. But the Allies got there before the Germans could incinerate all the bodies. And when the American soldiers got there and they saw the bodies piled up in the ovens, they couldn't believe it. Of course, they'd never seen anything like it. Two hours later, General George S. Patton got there to inspect the camp. And when he got there and saw it, he promptly vomited. You know, George Patton, you know, old blood and guts, they called him. He vomited. Couldn't take the sight of it. And when Patton began to question the few survivors there and asked him what had happened and how this could happen, the survivors said, well, the guards, uh, we know they went into town every night to, to womanize and to drink and to brag. The people there must have known what was happening with us here. And so Patton went into Ordruff, into the town, and asked him, did you know what was going on in the camp? And they said, we didn't know. We had no idea. And Patton said to the mayor and to the mayor's wife, he said, well, whether you did or whether you didn't know, you guys and all the able-bodied townspeople tomorrow, all of you are coming out to dig mass graves for those bodies. And so they did. The next day, the mayor and the mayor's wife and the folks in town went out and spent the whole day inside the camp, saw the prisoners, and dug the graves for the bodies. They went home that night, And that night, the mayor and the mayor's wife hung themselves, hung themselves, and they left a note. And this is what the note said. Hear this. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. See, that's self-deception. It's not the most terrible thing you do, but it's the reason you do the most terrible things you do. What has God asked you to do that you know you haven't done? few case studies here, questions. Do you invest maybe in your child's spiritual development for those of you who have kids, or do you just shove them in bed, tune them out, get to the TV thinking, hey, the church will raise my kids. See, it's only partial obedience. Did you make a vow to God saying, God, if you'll bless me in my business, in my career, you know, if the money thing comes through, I'll really give then. And then it came through, and the deal went through, and then you said, well, now I've got to keep it, God, to save for retirement. And my, my kids' education, the kids, you know, you gave me, God. That's only partial obedience, or actually none at all. Maybe it's just it's sex with someone you're not married to. You say, man, I, I deserve it, right? We're going to get married anyway. What about a bigger issue? Something on a national scale. Hmm? Something, you know, national in focus. What about, what about the right of the unborn to live and have a voice. Hmm? See, deep down, we know. We know what happens in those clinics. We know. We know. Do you see what we do as people? I mean, over and over, we try to tell our consciences, like Saul told his, everything's fine when we know it's not. Secondly, we blame others. We'll be moving on now in this incredibly inspirational message today. You're all so excited about Samuel asked Saul, why, if you say you've heard the, verse, the voice of the Lord, why do I hear sheep? And look at what Saul immediately replies. Saul said, they oh, have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best 
to sacrifice to, to the Lord your God. A few verses later, he's back at again, blaming the nameless, faceless group. He says, I did obey the voice of the Lord in verse 20, but the people took some of the spoil and the choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. And in these two verses, we see the two main ways we try to blame shift, the two main avenues down which we drive our self-deception. First, people, we can, you can, hide behind others, behind hypocrites. See, who does Saul blame first, right? He blames those people, the hypocrites, the people who didn't obey God. He's saying, I obeyed, you know, but they didn't, and that's why I'm off the hook here. See, those bad people are off the hook, and we do this all the time. People do this all the time, especially secular, liberal people today. They say, look at the church, right? Look at the people in the church. Look at the hypocrites. Look at what that pastor did. If he's not going to live it, why should I? I'm going to appeal to you. Please don't let this be you. Was it true that the people had been hypocritical? Yes. But who did God come to you and hold responsible for his actions? Saul, right? Make the choice today, church, not to allow someone else's disobedience and failure or sin or bad attitude to be the final determinant of, first of all, what's true in God's word, and secondly, your own behavior in your life. Listen, I'm not going to allow, and I'd hope you'd hold me to it, I'm not going to allow what some pastor does or doesn't do or preaches or doesn't preach to determine whether or not I preach the gospel. Not going to allow it. God will hold us accountable no matter how much we blame others downstream. But the second way we see Paul, excuse me, Saul blame shifting is the way many conservative religious people do. He hides behind religion. He hides behind church. He says, hey, you know, Samuel, we saved the best animals to have this big church service, you know, like a sacrifice kind of thing. Maybe you could come preach at it. Be our honored guest. Take up a love offering for you, Samuel, right? He's covering his conscience with religion. He's saying, I may just disobey, but at least I'm going to go to church and make a sacrifice, right? And this is how the slide away from God begins, pointing to what we do good with one hand while holding evil in the other hand, justifying our bad behavior by the good things we do over here. You two, the group, sings about it this way. They said, the worst things in the world are justified by belief. It's true. And this is why you can cheat on your taxes and say, well, you know, I may be cheating on my taxes, but at least I'm not cheating lots of people like those guys at Enron or that, you know, the banks over there. Well, what did the folks at you know, the banks or Enron say? They say, you know, we cheated people, but it's not like we killed anybody, right? Like the mafia, you know? Well, what did the mafia hitmen say? Well, we kill, but only people who really deserve it. At least we're not like Hitler or somebody. Well, what did Hitler say? I don't know, but Hitler, he must have said something, right? Everyone blames someone else. Third, we build monuments. The third reason we don't obey God fully is because we do what Saul has done here. It's so convicting. He says, he read, we read early in the story that Saul has built a monument to himself. He's the king already, but that's not enough for him. Everybody's got to know he's the king. Everyone's got to see him, think about him, listen to him. Why does he do this? I mean, why does he self-promote and make an idol out of his position? 
Why does anyone do this? Well, the answer is in what Samuel tells him in verse 17. Samuel said, isn't it true that though you were little in your own eyes, small in your own eyes, you were made king by God, Saul, over the nation? Oh, see the word here, the word small here literally means insignificant in Hebrew. It means to be of little to no value. What's Samuel telling Saul? He's saying, Saul, though you felt insignificant on the inside, like a nobody and a nothing on the inside, though you felt like a commoner, Saul, God's made you king. You don't have to prove it to anybody. Saul's forgotten. Forgotten. He's the commoner who became a king. But he's a king who still feels like a commoner. And because he sees himself as insignificant on the inside... He's got to build a monument to himself on the outside. And here's the tragedy. When you build a monument to yourself, now you've got a reputation to protect. And you've got to act in a way that preserves your reputation. That's the reason Saul kept Agag alive. I mean, if you've got another king in your service, what does that make you, right? A greater king, a higher king, maybe the king of kings, Therefore, when it came time to obey God, even in something small, Saul couldn't do it. He's got a reputation to protect and a monument to live up to. Self-perpetuating cycle. You see yourself as insignificant. You'll build a monument. Now you've got an image to protect, and you can't obey God when his word goes against your image. You know the real reason you people struggle with sin? It's this. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are on the inside. That's the reason uh, that, you, that you can't apologize. Why Maybe you've got to be right all the time. Why you shove your way into conversations or can't handle criticism. Maybe while you go off on your kids, you can't handle a threat to your image. The perfect child, marriage, house, career. It's killing you. Which brings us, finally and thankfully, to number three. How God frees how does God free us? How can he free anyone from blame-shifting, self-deception, and monument-building? Let's see. After Saul blames the people yet again, Saul turns to him and says, it's the high point in the, in, in the text, he says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey better than, is better than sacrifice and to heed and the fat of rams. Oh, he's saying this. The cure for sin, Saul, the cure for insignificance is God's delight to you on the inside. It's feeling God's delight. He's saying, if you had God's delight, Saul, you wouldn't have done this. You wanted it, but you were going about it in the wrong way. And you say, well, that's great. Man, God's delight. I would love that. Oh, I'd like some of that. Don't quit reading. It says, this is what brings God's delight into your life. Perfect obedience. Perfectly obeying the voice of the Lord. Samuel saying to Saul, Saul, if you would have obeyed God perfectly, down to the smallest detail, if you'd have kept all his commands and kept his law to the uttermost, his delight would have been on you. And the same is true for us, for you. If you will obey God perfectly, down to the smallest detail, keep all his commands and the motives for doing so, and his perfect law in every way, his delight will be on you. If not, it won't. See, the reason you sin is because you feel insignificant, and the cure is God's delight, which comes through obeying him perfectly. Well, that's it. That's the sermon and the lesson. 
Obey God perfectly. Let's pray. Of course, I can't end it there. And you know that. When I said that, when I said the only way God's delight comes on you is through obedience, that's absolutely true. And it's absolutely horrifying. And this story, by the way, should terrify you. It should terrify you. Because if it doesn't, you're not reading it right. Because it's telling us that God's delight only comes through perfect obedience. But whose obedience? Whose obedience? Centuries later... The writer of the book of Hebrews looked at the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and noticed and saw that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he had the attitude of one of the Psalms in particular. It was Psalm 40. And we're going to read this. Notice how much Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 sound like 1 Samuel. Hebrews 10 says that when Jesus Christ came into the world, this is what he said to God. and said, sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then Jesus said, I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Obedience saves. Disobedience and rebellion destroy. Which means we're all in trouble unless Hebrews 10 is right. Obedience saves, disobedience destroys. But whose obedience saves and whose disobedience destroys? And what Hebrews 10 is telling us is this, that Jesus Christ, the true first king of heaven, left his father's throne and came to earth. But on this earth, he took the lowly place. He never built a monument to himself. He was born in an animal outhouse, killed as a young man, though he had done nothing but perfectly love and perfectly serve and heal and obey God perfectly. Why? Oh, because he had to be put under the ban for our disobedience. He was destroyed for our disobedience so that the blessing of his obedience and the delight of Almighty God could come to us. Jesus is, was the king who became a commoner so that we commoners could be, feel, and become kings. See, in the book of Revelation, and this is where the Bible, church, where it gets almost too good to be true, is just because of what Jesus has done, because of his perfect life and obedience and sacrifice, we now are priests and kings before God. And that long after the rule of every earthly king has passed, long after Napoleon and any other king, Alexander, our presidents are all but shadows in the footnotes of history, we will be ruling and reigning with God for an eternity in his loving presence for beyond time and far beyond our imagination. See? And if you, if you'll reach out to that today, if you'll say, my obedience, my goodness, my church stuff, my being a tolerant, open-minded person, that can't save me. But the obedience of one can You get the delight of God on the inside. You go from commoner to king, commoner to queen in a moment. It's not fair. It shouldn't be. See? But it's true. That's grace. And King Saul's failure now opens the door for Israel's true king, David, and our greater king, Jesus Christ. See, King Saul's failure shows us Jesus' faithfulness all the more. And that's the gospel. That God, in his rich mercy 
can move and blow his delight through your soul. His favor comes on you. Now you can be free to obey him. Obey him, even in the small things.